Well, I want to begin by asking you what makes a minister of the gospel successful? How would you picture a successful Christian pastor? What's he look like? What, what image comes to mind as I ask that question? Well, if you were to query the infinite wisdom of the contemporary evangelical subculture, you might get a response like this. A, a successful pastor is an attractive, well-built, well-dressed, well-groomed young man who's an excellent communicator. He exudes charisma. People are just drawn to him. Uh, they love to follow his lead. He's an inspiring vision caster. He's got contagious energy and passion, and, and there's just a certain gravitas to him at the same time. And he really knows how to hone the power of words to motivate his followers, to stir them up. And because of this, his church numbers in the thousands, maybe even the tens of thousands. He has a, a far-reaching multimedia ministry that is brimming with the utmost professionalism, He's written a number of books, always has several book deals waiting in the wings. He's invited to speak at all the major evangelical conferences, and he probably has a blog on the Gospel Coalition website. His beautiful wife loves him. His adorable, saved kids love him. His local church loves him, and the church at large loves him. He is the picture of ministerial success. And there are two ways that you men, pastors and elders and leaders in Christ church, men who come to shepherd's conference, two ways that you will be tempted by that picture. Some of you want to be that guy at any cost. Some of you are convinced that that you are the next John MacArthur, the next R.C. Sproul, the next John Piper, ready to carry the evangelical movement to new heights if only your professors or your congregation and the evangelical intelligentsia could get their act together and see what's staring them right in the face. There's an uncrucified lust for preeminence, for celebrity, a fleshly desire for influence. Some of you wrestle with thinking more highly of yourselves than you ought. And if you're, and, and you're convinced that, you know, listen, I, I think I ought to have a general session at Shepherd's Conference. <laughs> at, at, at least, at least I ought to have a, a seminar at Shepherd's Conference, at least a lunch seminar. Or at the very least, some of you think that's what the measure of success is in Christian ministry. Even if you didn't, you don't really want that in the depth of your being. You, you have this notion that if I were to make it, that's what it would look like. Somebody knows my name. People recognize me in a crowd. They want me to sign their Bible or this or that. You've confused Christian celebritism with Christian faithfulness. Others of you will consider this picture of the, the successful pastor and you'll be tempted to despair. You know your weaknesses with ministry and the house and the wife and kids Preparing to preach every Sunday. Some of you maybe twice on Sunday. Some of you maybe twice on Sunday and on Wednesday. Counseling during the week with visiting and calling and shepherding the people of God and all the other demands of ministry. Running on fumes seems to be a way of life. 
You love the Lord. You desire to serve him, but you're all too familiar with the remaining sin that is at home in your flesh. You devote yourself to your studies, but ministry just always seems like such a grind. Like you're always two or three steps behind. You continue to make progress, but you feel like you'll just never get a grasp on the languages that that pastor has, or you're you're never going to be able to preach like this pastor does, or you'll never be the evangelist that that guy is. And you settle into this thought that if God is going to accomplish something of greatness or importance in the church, he's going to use one of those other successful guys to do it. You think of your weakness as an obstacle to God's purposes. And if you thought that way, you'd be in good company or perhaps not good company. You'd you'd be in prolific company. There'd be plenty of people in the first century church of Corinth that would have agreed with you. But the apostle Paul was not one of them. You remember the scene in Corinth as the, in the writing of second Corinthians, false apostles from Jerusalem have infiltrated the church seeking to, to peddle their Judaizing heresy among the Corinthian believers. And in order to make a way for their false teaching, they knew that they were going to have to undermine Paul's teaching. But because Paul was teaching the gospel and because you can't undermine the truth, you can't discredit the truth, these men attacked Paul himself, seeking to discredit Paul's character in the eyes of the Corinthians, even going so far as to question whether he was even a genuine apostle of Christ at all. And so they launched every accusation they could possibly think of against him, no matter how farcical, no matter how petty, no matter how low of a blow it was, they were merciless. They accused him of trying to deceitfully take advantage of the Corinthians. They seized the opportunity to style Paul's change of travel plans as evidence that he was, chapter 1, verse 17, purposing according to the flesh, of saying one thing and doing another just to manipulate the church. They accused him of being uncredentialed. He lacked authority. After all, he was just this sort of Johnny-come-lately apostle who wasn't part of the original 12. He had no letters of commendation. They had these letters of commendation, which they had forged, you know, from the Jerusalem church. Who are you? They accused him of embezzling the money that he collected as church offerings, right? The real reason he's so exercised, so concerned about that taking this collection of money for the, for the saints in Jerusalem in chapters eight and nine is because he's skimming off the top. He's pocketing that money for himself. But chief among their accusations was that Paul suffered far too much to be a legitimate minister of the gospel. His life was a tale of one crushing conflict after another crushing conflict. He looked nothing like conventional wisdom's picture of ministerial success. He's just spent by the time we come to chapter four, verse seven, he's just spent a chapter and a half extolling the unspeakable glories of the new covenant, celebrating what an amazing privilege it is to be a minister of the gospel. This is the ministry chapter two, verse 16. That is the aroma of life that leads to life. Chapter three, verses seven and eight. This is the ministry of the spirit, the ministry of righteousness, the ministry that does not fade away. 
In chapter four, verse six, the glory of this ministry is the very light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining in the face of Christ. The light that shines into the sinner's dead heart and begets within it the life of the very Holy Spirit himself. And the false apostles are, are saying to the Corinthians, right, the gospel of Christ is glorious. But are you telling me that the glorious God who's given us this glorious gospel has put his blessing upon Paul? He is anything but glorious. He's always getting beaten and stoned. He's always getting chased out of every city he goes into. He doesn't even have the bare necessities of life. He's without food and water and poorly clothed and he's homeless and he's always staring death in the face. And you know, besides all that, the man is just nobody special. In, in 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, Paul reiterates one of their accusations that they made against him. They said his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. He was just unimpressive. He was underwhelming, not very charming or charismatic, certainly not good looking. And for someone who claimed to be a public speaker, his speech was contemptible. He wasn't a good orator. He had no rhetorical skills that would commend him as a great communicator. And they're saying, the false apostles, the infiltrators are saying, this man who claims to be entrusted with such a glorious ministry as even he himself has described is the furthest thing from glorious that you could possibly imagine. And it's that very objection that Paul answers in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 12, which will be the focus of our time together this afternoon. So follow along with me as I read 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 to 12. Paul writes, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way or in every way afflicted but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body, the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Now, again, ever since chapter two, verse 14, throughout the whole of chapter three, and then the first six verses of chapter four, Paul has been carefully defining and defending the nature of new covenant ministry, a ministry that is inestimably glorious. But now he turns to define the key features of the new covenant minister. And what we, find that, what we find here is that there is a fundamental contrast between the glory of the new covenant message and the weakness and the shame and the suffering of the new covenant messenger. See, so far from disqualifying us and Paul and those like him from new covenant ministry, as the false apostles claimed, as we are often so tempted to believe about ourselves, this passage teaches us that our weaknesses are in fact essential to our ministry. 
And to see that this afternoon, we're going to unfold this passage across three units of thought. First, we'll see a fundamental and orienting principle for Christian ministry. Second, we're going to examine two paradoxes of Christian ministry. And finally, we'll look at the prophet of Christian ministry, the principle, the paradoxes, and the prophet, all with the goal of understanding the proper relationship between weakness and suffering and faithful Christian ministry. Well, let's look first at this fundamental and orienting principle for Christian ministry. We see it in the first part of verse seven. Paul says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. So this orienting principle for Christian ministry is that there is a fundamentally disproportionate relationship between the glory of the new covenant message and the glory of the new covenant messenger. There is a fundamental contrast between the glory of the new covenant ministry and the shame of the new covenant minister. And we see that by the word picture that Paul uses. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Now the gospel friends is a treasure The glorious good news of the new covenant is absolutely priceless. Whereas the old covenant only brought death and condemnation, the new covenant, chapter three, verses seven and eight, brings spiritual life. It brings saving righteousness. Whereas the old covenant only provided limited access to the concealed glory of God, chapter three, verses 12 to 18, the new covenant provides continual access to open-faced admiration of the glory of God shining in the face of Christ. The law made nothing perfect. Hebrews seven nineteen. The law only further aroused our sinful passions. Romans seven says, but the new covenant brings transformation and conformity to the image of Christ from the inside out. We all with unveiled face are being transformed. Second Corinthians three eighteen. And whereas the old covenant was powerless to transform the heart of man, only ever informing us of our duty as as pressure from without, but never giving us power from within. The gospel of the glory of Christ, chapter four, verse six, shines into that dead heart. And the Holy Spirit himself awakens the affections to hate sin and love righteousness. The gospel is a treasure. But, Verse seven, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. The way that God shows off the splendor of this treasure is this treasure that is the gospel is to house it in the most humble, unremarkable, unimpressive containers. Paul compares himself and again, all of us who were ministers of the new covenant to earthen vessels. And an earthen vessel was just a common clay pot or jar. It was the very quintessence of that which was ordinary, that which was unremarkable, that which was easily breakable, easily replaceable, not attractive, not valuable at all. One commentator said, earthen vessels had no enduring value and were so cheap that when they were broken, no one attempted to mend them. They simply discarded them. Broken glass was melted down to make new glass, uh, but an earthenware vessel once hardened in a kiln was non-recyclable. Another writer said, no one took note of clay jars any more than we would of a fast food container. They were simply there for convenience. It was no great tragedy when such vessels were broken. They were cheap and easy to replace. 
So these were the paper plates and the styrofoam cups of the ancient world. And this is what we are, man. This is what the Christian minister is. We are not the fine china that people use to impress their dinner guests. We are the ordinary, unremarkable, fragile, expendable earthen vessels. We are not the high-powered, put-together, well-respected, perfectly polished cultural elite. Remember what Paul had already told the Corinthians in, in his first letter to them, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and following. He says, consider your calling, brethren. Think about what you were when you were called. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world. He's pointing at them to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world, the agenes, the of no birth and the despised God has chosen the things that are not. These are the are nots, the, the nobodies so that he might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. This is you. This is me. And turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you didn't already turn back there, turn to chapter 4 in the first letter of Corinthians. In this passage, Paul comments on the role that even God's choicest servants have in this world. 1 Corinthians 4, we'll read in uh, verses 9 to 13. Speaking of the apostles, I think by extension can apply to the leadership of the, of the church of Christ in in this new covenant era, even after the era of the apostles have ceased. Verse nine, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You're distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. And, you know, after a long time of putting on our suits and ties, living in our comfortable homes, driving our comfortable cars, being generally well-to-do people, even getting to come to Shepherd's Conference every year, and let's be honest, getting treated like kings, it can become easy to forget that we are the nobodies. We are those of no birth. No noble birth, no lineage, no pedigree. We're the scum of the world and the dregs of all things. And I admit that it's hard to have that mindset when you come and you see all the guys in suits and ties and French cuffs and polished shoes and all these things. But we can't get away from the picture that the Apostle Paul gives to us. I loved what H.B. said yesterday about being in the tattered and torn rags 
because we're not home yet. We may enjoy lawfully the, the, the comforts of this life. We might even dress ourselves up in suits and ties and, and, and enjoy the common grace of God in, in life. We might, but we, we can't get comfortable. We can't lose sight of the fact that we are pilgrims. We've got to keep in the forefront of our mind that we are not home yet. What an unbelievable contrast that we get in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 between the treasure of the gospel of the glory of Christ and the earthen vessel in which that treasure is housed. The container is worthless, but the contents are priceless. The gospel is so glorious, but God has chosen to commit the priceless treasure of the gospel message to weak, suffering, perishing men like you and me. Now, why would he do such a thing? Why in the world would God choose such a disproportionately shameful medium to display this priceless treasure to the world? Look again at at verse seven. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. So can you behold the genius of divine wisdom here? God entrusts the priceless treasure of the gospel to be borne by insignificant, frail, unattractive earthen vessels so that when something amazing happens, when the gospel does its work, and when hearts are awakened and affections are renewed, and when wills are transformed, when eyes are opened to treasure Jesus and the fragrance of the gospel finally smells like life, There will be no doubt as to who is responsible for that. There will be no doubt as to where that kind of transforming power comes from. See, God delights to use humble, weak people, common people to proclaim his gospel because most fundamentally, God is committed to showcasing the beauty, not of your glory, but of his own glory. If he were to place the treasure of his gospel in an ornate treasure chest decorated with precious stones, the glory of the container might compete with the glory of the contents. But by committing the gospel treasure to earthen vessels, he magnifies the brilliance and the beauty of the gospel message by setting it against the backdrop of weak and suffering messengers. And so the high-powered Wheeling and dealing, self-sufficient, gifted communicator, professional and polished ministers actually detract from the glory and power of God and gospel ministry. Because when those guys see results, people wonder whether it was God's power or their polish, their ingenuity that brought those results, their innovation But the beauty of it is Paul has nothing. The man is beaten. He is stoned. He's homeless. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He's not attractive. He's not eloquent. He's not charming. He's the scum of the earth. And nobody's looking at Paul and saying, man, it'd be so cool to be a Christian. Man, it'd be cool to be like Paul. Maybe I could become a Christian. He's sort of like me. I I want what he has. And so when someone does turn from their sin and does put their trust in Christ, there's no question as, where, as to where the power comes for, for that conversion. 
So in the end, Paul's response to the accusations of the false apostles that that his weaknesses and sufferings are so disproportionate to the glory of the new covenant gospel, so out of step with the message that he preaches, with the God that he serves. He says, yep, I am nothing special. I am anything but glorious. But so far from disqualifying me from being a true servant of Christ, my suffering, my weaknesses are the very badges of my apostolic, we could say ministerial authenticity. Because it's the very afflictions that, that I suffer that become the means through which God reveals the abundance of his divine power. Friends, human weakness is that black backdrop for that, that sets off in a brilliant display the working of the Spirit's power. It's like the, the, the dark sky in which the, the dazzling stars of God's glory are going to shine forth. It's in the shadowy gloom of Golgotha. It's in the suffering and the shame of the cross that makes the gleaming sun of resurrection life shine all the more brightly. And so true Christian ministry is not marked by the quote unquote glory of worldly power and eloquence or by prestige and reputation, by financial success and freedom from conflict, but by the weakness and the suffering of the cross of Christ. And so I would exhort you, flee from any conception of self-aggrandizement in the ministry. Don't run from the difficulties that are sure to come. Don't become masochists. Don't revel in your difficulties. Don't go searching difficulties out. Don't start poking people in the eye because you haven't had enough difficulty in a while. But I tell you to love your weaknesses. Love your powerlessness. Love your indignity. Don't sit there and say, man, I wish that I was John MacArthur and everybody loved me. I wish that, you know, I wish that I had, because that's also not true, right? I mean, there's also conflicts and difficult. This is a real church. It's not actually spiritual Disneyland, right? It's not just an amusement park. There are real people, real sinners with real sinful pastors and elders who have these difficult situations. And sit there pipe dreaming about, oh, if I could only, you know, as you minister to the body of Christ and things get difficult, as you get overwhelmed, as you get tired and frustrated and drained, in those moments of weakness, remind yourself that you are exactly where God has designed you to be, exactly where he puts his ministers, doing exactly what he's given you your life to do. You're an earthen vessel bearing the riches of the treasure of the gospel so that when God works through you, when he works through your frail and feeble efforts to make the word of God effectual in the life of his people, your weakness will showcase the glory of his power and there'll be no doubt where that glory goes. That is the orienting principle for Christian ministry that Paul teaches us in this text, that there is a fundamental contrast between the glory and the strength of the new covenant message and the shame and the weakness of the new covenant messenger. And we need to embrace this principle. We need to be well content with weaknesses, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. Well content with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when we are weak, then he is strong. Now, having laid out this principle of 
the contrast between the glory of the ministry and the weakness of the minister, Paul turns now to illustrate that principle by two paradoxical truths that characterize the Christian ministry. So having characterized the principle, we now turn our attention to the paradoxes, the paradoxes. And the first of those paradoxes has really been foreshadowed in verse seven. In verses eight and nine, we have an illustration of the truth that Christian ministry is marked by power in the midst of weakness, by power in the midst of weakness. Look at verses eight and nine. Paul says, in everything, afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And in, in what commentators have called uh, one of the most powerful rhetorical moments in all of the Paul, Pauline corpus, he illustrates this, that this principle of power in the midst of weakness is fundamental to Christianity, to Christian ministry, I should say. To Christianity as well. And he does that by means of four antitheses. In each first phrase, we see the weakness of the earthen vessel. And in each second phrase, we see the surpassing greatness of the power of God. So let's look more closely at each pair. He says, first, we are afflicted. Flibo from flipsis. The word communicates the idea of being pressed, of being under pressure. It's the, the general term for describing any kind of distress or tribulation. And I think the New King James renders this the best by translating it, we are hard-pressed. Paul endured pressure on every side. Everywhere he went, persecution and affliction pressed in on him. He says back in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, we don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. And in secular Greek, these words were used to describe a ship that, were so, that was so overloaded with cargo that it would ride low in the water and it would begin to sink. You've seen those, those cars that are packed full, the trunk, somebody's moving and the back seat's full and the trunk's full and the, and the, the back of the car is leaning down in the wheel well. So there's, they're covering the, uh, the back tires. It's weighed down. It was also used to describe a pack animal like a, a mule that was bearing or an ox that was bearing a load that was so much heavier than it can bear that, that it could bear that it was, it collapsed under the weight of that burden and despaired of rising again and actually just died, resigned itself to die where it lay. Paul says he was weighed down by the affliction, by the pressures that he faced because of his testimony about Christ. So, so much so that he could have collapsed under that weight and died where he was. But he says, we are not crushed. He might've been hard pressed from every angle. There might've been times where the weight on his shoulders was so heavy that he couldn't imagine taking another step. He couldn't, he, all he could do is think that he was, he was gonna collapse here and die and that was gonna be it. But that pressure never crushed him. He might've been hemmed in, but he was never cornered because the power of God was active in preserving and delivering him. Paul always found the strength to take another step, to walk on in another, another mile, to bear the load one more day. We see him afflicted in Corinth as in Acts 18, Phil mentioned this earlier today. He's facing the intensity of, of trials that require the Lord Jesus to come to him in a vision. You remember, he's just been exasperated by the, the Corinthians and Christ comes and he says, don't stop, go on ministering. I have many people in this city. And then 
just after that, he's dragged before the seat of the Roman proconsul and he's accused of breaking Roman laws of ceremonial worship. And I imagine that, that Paul's back when he was dragged before Gallio there, that his, his back and his wrists and his ankles began to tingle because he was not fully healed from the last time. And he's anticipating, okay, am I going to get another one of these beatings? Am I going to be imprisoned again in the stocks? He began to feel the pressure. But in Acts 18, 14, it says, when Paul was just about to open his mouth, the proconsul Gallio spoke up and dismissed the case out of hand. And I think that's an illustration of Paul being hard pressed, but not crushed in his weakness, pressed with the prospect of another beating and imprisonment. The Lord works by the surpassing greatness of his power providentially causes this Roman proconsul to cause him to be released. Second, Paul says we're perplexed. Apareo. It means to be confused, to be bewildered, to, to be at a loss. Paul used this verb of himself in uh, Galatians 4.20, where he tells the Galatians, I am perplexed about you. He says, I'm, I'm at a loss to understand how a church that seemed to begin so soundly in the gospel has been bewitched by the heresy of the Judaizers. And as he experienced this daily concern for the health of all the churches, he'll say in 2 Corinthians 11, and as he experienced the, the, the opposition and the, the persecution that he faced in every city, Paul would just be sometimes at a loss to understand what God was doing or, or how he was going to get out of the predicament that he was in. But he says, we are not despairing. Great wordplay going on there. We are apareo, but not ex apareo. We are perplexed. We are confused. We are bewildered. We are at a loss but we're never in a decisive state of despair that we lose all hope. He is always ultimately confident and hopeful in the sovereign power of God. And uh, commenting on this, Philip Hughes wrote, to be at the end of man's resources is not to be at the end of God's resources. On the contrary, to be at the end of man's resources is to be precisely in the position best suited to prove and to benefit from God's resources and to experience the surplus of the power of God breaking through and resolving the human dilemma. Third, Paul says we are persecuted, but not forsaken. Everywhere I go, I'm hunted. Everywhere I go, I'm chased down, harassed by men, five times whipped with 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, once stoned, three times shipwrecked in dangers from rivers and robbers in the city, in the wilderness, from Jews, Gentiles. If there was ever a word that you could use to describe the apostle Paul, it's persecuted, but never forsaken. He was persecuted by men, but he was never abandoned by God. And we see that illustrated in his life, I think, in Acts 16, where he casts out the spirit of divination from the slave girl in Philippi, whose masters were using her as a fortune teller. They lost their meal ticket, so they had Paul seized. They had him charged, beaten, imprisoned. But in the midst of that persecution, he was not forsaken. What happened? The Lord sends an earthquake that shakes the foundations of the prison. All the doors fly open. Everyone's chains fall off. And when the jailer witnesses the surpassing greatness of divine power, he falls at Paul and Silas's feet and, and turns to Christ. And I say, there is an illustration of Christian ministry. Go to jail. 
be absolutely helpless, pray, sing hymns, and watch God show up and save people. The jailer didn't look at Paul and say, man, this guy's got it all together. Look at how blessed he is. Look at how healthy and wealthy and favored. I'd like some of that blessing. I think I'll follow Jesus. No, in the minister's abject helplessness, God showed up and displayed his surpassing power. Now, who gets the glory for that jailer's conversion? Paul's polish, Paul's excellent communicator, wheeling and dealing, Paul's book deals, his conference circuit. God alone, because in Paul's weakness, this earthen vessel could never compete with the glory of the treasure. And that is genius worthy of marveling at divine grace. And finally, Paul says, we are struck down, kataballo, literally to throw down. He, Paul uses this word in a technical sense that it, it acquired from athletic and military contexts. In wrestling, it referred to being thrown to the mat. In boxing, being knocked down to the canvas. And in battle, it referred to being knocked to the ground by enemy forces. And I think the, the boxing meta metaphor captures it best. There were countless times that Paul was knocked down. But because God's power is perfected in weakness, he was never knocked out. No TKOs in Christian ministry. And we see this happen in Paul's life in Acts 14. Jews come down from Antioch, Iconium, where Paul's preaching in Lystra. They start a riot among the crowds. They have Paul stoned. So Paul was quite literally struck down to the point that the crowd dragged him outside of the city and left him for dead. But as the text says, he was not destroyed. Acts 14, 20 says, but while the disciples stood around him, and I love the simplicity of this, he got up and entered the city. Now, how about that for missionary strategy? Preach the gospel and get knocked unconscious by an angry mob. See, the ministry gurus who had infiltrated the church in Corinth, they see Paul get stoned and they say, how, how could you conclude anything other than that this guy is under divine judgment? I mean, he's literally getting stoned by people. They're th people are throwing rocks at him. But when Paul just gets up and walks away, is there any doubt about where the power of his ministry comes from? See, it's brilliant. God has specifically designed that his messengers be weak so that he can show off his power, his treasure in the gospel message. And this kind of suffering, this kind of weakness, it wasn't just, uh, it wasn't some sort of anomaly in Paul's ministry saying, you know, like everybody has bad days. You know, every once in a while you're gonna have to get stoned. No, this was not an occasional experience for Paul. Each of these part participles in verses eight and nine are in the present tense, continuous action. It, it says in the NAS, it says, you know, we are afflicted in every way as if in every way modified only that first participial phrase, but it's not so in, in, in every way it stands at the beginning of that list of four antitheses in every way, in everything afflicted, in everything crushed, in everything perplexed, or sorry, not crushed, uh, in everything afflicted, in everything perplexed, in everything persecuted, in everything struck down. In verse 10, he says, I, we always 
carry about in the body, the dying of Jesus. Verse 11, he is constantly being delivered over to death. This is not an occasional thing. Suffering is the business of Christian ministry. And now it's true that the great majority of us will not suffer in the precise ways that Paul suffers. We probably, well, you never know, but we probably won't be thrown into prison and put in stocks and stoned for what we're doing. Maybe, maybe we should be, right? One of the things Lawson always says, I think he quotes, I forget who he quotes, probably Spurgeon or something that says the problem, or it was Luther, the problem the problem with today's ministers is that nobody wants to kill anybody anymore. Nobody wants to kill the pastors of this generation anymore. So maybe we need to be, you know, ministering in a way, confronting the world in a way that brings this kind of persecution. But we, again, we don't court this kind of persecution and we likely won't face this particular kind. But when you are doing the hard work of laboring with someone in their sanctification, when, when you're pleading with someone, when you're strengthening their hands to put off sin and put on righteousness and they are being stubborn and they, aren't, they don't want to hear it and you're just laboring and praying and laboring and praying over weeks and months, there are going to be times when you're perplexed, right? When you're bewildered, when you're at a loss, how do I move forward? How do I benefit this person? This is, Lord, this is the one you're giving me to minister to? You, this is my task right here? Can I just kind of put him over to the side? When you're serving people who are difficult to serve, there are going to be times where you feel the pressures, you're hard pressed. Pressures rush in from every angle. And when these dear brothers and sisters that you're ministering to, whom you love, when they turn on you, and in order to nurture their own flesh and protect their sin, when they accuse you of, of prying into their business, just leave me alone, you busybody. Spiritual abuse, church elders just trying to get into all my life and, and tell me, direct me how to go and dictate to me. You take, hey, take care of the log and I'll take care of the speck, all right? Or on the opposite end, they accuse you of, of not caring enough. Pastor, I called you and you didn't ever call me back. You didn't, you didn't come see me. You didn't call, you didn't even text me. You don't care about me, do you? And these people are your friends, right? These are people that you live with, in the same town with, in the same city. You see week by week when your friends, people you could never imagine speaking to you in that way, when, that kind of, when, they, when they do that, you're going to feel like you just took a shot to the gut and got knocked to the canvas at times. But in those moments, don't you dare give up. In those moments, you recognize that you are right in the middle of fulfilling your calling to be a clay pot, to be a minister of the new covenant in the body of Christ. That it's recognized in those moments, you have to call to your mind, you have to preach truth to yourself in the, that it's only against the, back, the black backdrop of, of those pressures, right? Only in that kind of perplexity, only in that weakness that God is able to show up and through the ministry of the word, which, you, which you're speaking which you are praying, then able to display the surpassing greatness of his divine power. So don't waste the suffering that you experience in ministry. Receive those trials and, and difficulties as opportunities to make God look glorious and powerful. The nature of the Christian's life of ministry is not 
health and wealth and prosperity. It's not conflict-free mountain peaks of success after success. To put it you know, concretely, it's not shepherd's conference all the time. God displays his power in the midst of weakness. And that brings us to a second paradox. Not only is Christian ministry characterized by power in the midst of weakness, it's also characterized by life in the midst of death. Life in the midst of death. Look at verses 10 and 11. Paul says, we are always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now, these two parallel sentences form a theological interpretation and summary of the four contrasts in verses eight and nine. Paul summarizes being afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. And he calls that the dying of Jesus. And he calls that being delivered over to death for Jesus sake. And then he summarizes not being crushed, not being in despair, not being forsaken and not being destroyed as the life of Jesus. In that phrase, the dying of Jesus, Paul doesn't use thanatos there. He uses necrosis. And we have borrowed that word necrosis in in English. That's a medical term that refers to the dying of tissue. So if your skin is necrotic, it means that your skin cells are in the process of dying. And usually your hand looks black or green or something like that. Same is true in Greek. Necrosis communicates more of the process of dying, whereas thanatos, the single event of death itself. So when Paul says he's always carrying about in the body, the necrosis, the dying of Jesus, he's not referring to the moment that Jesus took his last breath on the cross. He's speaking of the daily trials and hardships that Jesus himself suffered during his earthly ministry. So Paul is saying, when I'm afflicted, when I'm perplexed and persecuted and struck down in the course of my ministry, when I suffer for the cause of the gospel, I bear in my body and display to the world the very sufferings of Christ himself. Now grasp the significance of that. There is no way that the false apostles are saying, right? There's no way he can be blessed of God and face that much conflict. No one sent from Christ could possibly be confronted with that much suffering and weakness and difficulty. Now, but do you hear that though? They're saying Paul can't be identified with Jesus because Paul suffered too much. And Paul says, those very sufferings are precisely what identify me with Jesus. And it's here that we recognize that the height of the absurdity of the false apostles, health, wealth, prosperity model for ministry, the height of the stupidity of the professionalized corporate success model for ministry, the kingdom building, high powered ministerial starch, come here, kiss my ring kind of ministry. If suffering and weakness disqualify you from ministry, what do these charlatans think of Jesus? He certainly didn't enjoy the finer comforts of this life. Paul's argument is basically to point to Jesus and say, the world hated my master and now they hate his slaves. And and that's exactly what he said would happen. What wasn't it? John 15, 20 slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, if they don't, 
Maybe you look too much like them and not enough like your savior. So you see the the high-powered, cultural elite, ministry gurus who style success in ministry as a function of the minister's popularity and look down on those who were suffering and weak and mired in difficulty, these people would have thought that Jesus' personal presence was unimpressive. They would have thought that Jesus' speech was contemptible. Paul's only following in the footsteps of his master. And if the master was treated so contemptuously as to be mocked and to be spit on and to be beaten and to be crucified, what makes the slaves think that we would have it any better? If that's what happened to the master, what makes us think that our lives would not, would be anything but a continual crucifixion, a living martyrdom of our own comforts and preferences. If what characterized the ministry of Christ is that he laid his life down, what in the world is wrong with us that we think our ministry would be anything less than the laying down of our life week by week, day after day for people who aren't always grateful for it, for fruit that we don't always get to see. It's not that we have to die, go get hit by a bus for your church. No, but dying daily, 1 Corinthians 15, 31, considered as a sheep led to the slaughter, Romans 8, 36. Laying down our lives in a kind of living death so that the body of Christ might be built up and sanctified. One commentator writes, Christ crucified is not only Paul's message, but it is also his model. He has become the suffering apostle of the suffering Messiah. Paul's suffering continues to reveal God's saving activity as he carries around Christ's death and displays it for all to see. And another commentator says, if God's definitive salvific act occurred through the weakness of the crucified Jesus, then it should be no surprise that the saving gospel of the crucified Jesus should reach the Gentiles through the weakness of of his apostle or could reach the men and women in your communities through the weakness of their pastor. Paul says, I bear on my body, the brand marks of Jesus, Galatians six. These are the brand marks of Jesus. There is a sweet fellowship, an intimate communion, a unique bond of intimacy that the slaves share with their Lord because of their common suffering. Now, of course, we don't suffer on, you know, on behalf as the penal substitute for the church, but we do, again, lay our lives down in continual suffering when it's inconvenient, when it's difficult. And we do bear the scorn of the world and sometimes the scorn of the sheep for the sake of righteousness. And in Philippians 3.10, Paul calls that the fellowship of, of Christ's sufferings, the fellowship of Christ's sufferings being conformed to his death. And that is a fellowship that the false apostles and the health wealth hucksters and the people who have never felt the sting of ministerial suffering don't have. So Paul says in that verse also, I want to know him and knowing him happens through knowing the fellowship of his sufferings and being conformed to his death. 
And it's precisely as we are conformed to his death that we know not only the sweet fellowship of his sufferings, but also, he says, the power of his resurrection. Paul says that the minister of the new covenant is always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So the world, as we constantly face uh, death, as we constantly face this living death, this living martyrdom for the sake of the church, the world sees not, and the church sees not only Jesus dying in our sufferings, but they see the resurrection life by which Jesus himself conquered the grave and by which the grave has been conquered for all who trust in him. Only a living Christ, if we use Paul as an example, only a living Christ could so providentially deliver Paul from so great and so numerous these afflictions. Only a living Christ could sustain the heart of a tired servant after constantly bearing the shame and indignity of getting under his brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul's weaknesses illustrated the sufferings of the persecuted Jesus, but the surpassing greatness of God's power in Paul's weaknesses illustrated the resurrection life of, of the living Christ. So you see that the resurrection life of Jesus is not most fully put on display when Christ's people are healthy, wealthy, successful, and have it all together. And the Christian does not experience the power, the resurrection power of Jesus when they're triumphant and victorious and experiencing ecstatic flights of fancy. The manifestation of the life of Jesus happens exactly at the same time as the carrying around of his dying. It's not a matter of life after death or life through death even, but life in the midst of death. And that means, brothers, that unless we bear Christ dying, we will not manifest his life. Unless we experience our own weakness, we won't see divine power. And unless we bear the shame of an earthen vessel, we will never fully appreciate the glory of the treasure. <clears throat> so we have seen orienting principle for Christian ministry. We have seen the two paradoxes which characterize Christian ministry. Let's look just briefly at the conclusion of the matter, the prophet of Christian ministry, the prophet. And look with me at verse 12. Paul says, so death works in us, but life in you. Now that might seem a little like a little bit of a twist for an ending. Um, if we're following the parallelism of the preceding verses, we might've expected Paul to say, so death works in us, but life also works in us. But he doesn't say that. He says, death works in us, but life in you, Corinthians. The sufferings that Paul experienced on his missionary journeys were the very means by which the gospel was brought to Corinth. It's through those missionary labors that the Corinthians came to know Christ. And it's through those very same sufferings as Paul continues to labor in them, with them and among them, that more and more spiritual life and growth is communicated to the church unto their increasing maturity and sanctification. He says, I have the suffering and you have the benefit. 
I have the work, I have the living death, and you have the life, the spiritual life, the growth. The profit of the Christian ministry is that while death works in the weakness and suffering of Christian ministers who lay down their lives in service of Christ's church, the fruit of their labors, energized by the surpassing greatness of the power of God, results in spiritual life and growth for the body of Christ. So I ask you, can you be stirred? Not only by the idea of embracing weakness and indignity to put the power and glory of Christ on display, which is enough. But can you be motivated also to embrace that weakness, to embrace that dying living for the sake of the sheep that God has entrusted to your care, for the sake of the health of Christ's church? How will spiritual life be at work in the people of your church when the death of sacrificial service works in you? When you embrace the weakness of being the slave of all, to lose your life. Romans 8.36 again, to go, we are being killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered for the sake of the church. To die daily, 1 Corinthians 15.31. He says it in Philippians 2.17, to be poured out as a drink offering on, uh, on the sac- as a sacrifice and service of the faith of the church. It says in, in 2 Timothy 2.10, to endure all things for the sake of the elect so that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Do you love Christ, friends? Then you'll love his glory and you'll delight to put his strength on display. But do you love Christ? Then you will love his bride and you will delight to be slaves, to minister to her, to bind up her wounds to help her in her weakness, to love one another fervently from the heart. First Peter 1.22. Again, I quote Philip Hughes. He says, to see repentant sinners entering into newness of life in Christ makes every affliction born for Jesus sake and in his service a thousand times worthwhile. And this is the joy of all Christian witness. It is the unconquerable life of the risen Jesus within that enables his servants willingly and perpetually to be handed over to death for his sake in order that the same life of Christ may be kindled in the hearts of others. Dear brothers, fellow MacArthurites, fellow Shepherds Conference aficionados, Some of you are master's men. Some of you are students and graduates of the best seminary in the world. We are clay pots. We are the scum of the earth. We are not professionals. We are not the cool kids. We are not the fine China. We are the off scouring of the world. And my plea to you is to love that. You don't have to have a huge church to be faithful to Jesus. You don't have to have a book deal or thousands of downloads on sermon audio in order to be a faithful pastor. You don't have to headline at shepherd's conference to bring glory to Jesus. You don't have to preach a knockout sermon every single week. You just have to be weak. You have to be desperate for Christ's help. You have to die to yourself and your own comforts and your own glory and lay down your life to serve the people the Lord has entrusted to you. Because when you're weak, Christ is strong. When you're shamed, he is glorified. And when the death 
of radical sacrifice is at work in you. Spiritual life is at work in the church and she is strengthened. Only the weak survive in ministry. Only the weak survive and pray with me that we would be humbled to that weakness and that God would be pleased to minister in his strength. Father, that's our prayer that you would humble us if need be. We, we see our humility. We see the weakness that, that we are, the, the earthen vessel, the clay pot there, the styrofoam cup for all of our designer ties and polished shoes and, and hair gel and whatever else is this, this, all the frills. We know in our heart, we see the weakness of our own flesh too frequently to be puffed up beyond measure. And yet, sometimes we do lose sight of that. Keep, keep our weakness ever before our eyes and show us that our weakness is not cause for discouragement. It's cause for desperation, for dependence upon the power of Christ. We wouldn't want to build a ministry on our power anyway. We want the sheep to come. And so we pray that the shepherd's voice would be the voice that they hear, that the shepherd's voice would be the draw of our ministries, not our awesome church services and amazing orchestras or rock bands or whatever, but that the word of Christ being sounded forth week by week, faithfully through the exposition of the scriptures, sometimes with imperceptible fruit, growth at an imperceptible rate, but trusting that in the, in the faithfulness to just sound your voice into the ears of your people, into the, the, the hearts of your people, that you will have the prize for which you died, an, an inheritance of nations, a bride sp sprinkled clean by the washing of the water with the words so that we might present the people you have entrusted to us, to you as a pure bride. Father, working in the hearts of, of the men here in this room, the men here at Shepherd's Conference, to, to be not captivated by the, the quote-unquote glory of, of Christian celebritism, but to, to know themselves as the scum of the earth and the dregs of all things. May we be humble servants so that the strength and the glory of the gospel and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ be put on display. We pray that you would get what you are worthy of in the church, in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.